Hey, Chief Year is coming up fast, and I'm kind of nervous. I don't know about you. I'm nervous too. <laughs> Fortunately, in the comfort of my pocket with my phone nearby, I have the OBG project that's keeping me up to date. Definitely. And really nicely is as Chiefs, we now have one free year subscription to OBG First, which is where you can create your very own library online with all of their amazing articles that you can keep all in one place. And also a subscription service where they will send you daily emails with the most up-to-date recommendations and research. Want to find out how to get OBG First from the OBG Project? Head on over to creogsovercoffee.com and find out how you can get OBG First free for one year. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Today, we will be talking about the evidence-based cesarean section. This is an awesome topic, and for those of you who haven't read through the Gray Journal article by Josh Dalkey from 2013 or seen a talk about evidence-based cesarean section at ACOG or somewhere, it's really, really fascinating. So we're just hoping to share some of that in audio format with you guys today. Hey, what are our learning objectives? So first of all, I just want to say that, remember, this is not how to do a C-section because, of course, you really need to put your hands on a person to do a C-section. And this is not about why we're doing a C-section. Instead, we're going to learn about how we should be doing a C-section and understand the evidence behind certain steps in a C-section. And basically, our hope is that you'll take these points and make your C-section evidence-based. Excellent. So, Faye, what do we do, I guess, before we even get into the operating room? Like, are there things that we should be thinking about before the patient's on the table and we grab our scalpel? Definitely, yes. So there's a whole list of things that we should be thinking about before we take anybody to the operating room, right? So the first thing is prophylactic antibiotic. Nick, what do we, like, give all our patients at our hospital before they go to the operating room? Yeah. Of, of course, if they don't have a penicillin allergy. Yep. So there's grade A evidence, actually, based on randomized controlled trials for the type of antibiotic that you choose. And there have been randomized trials, again, that have looked at unison, You're looking at triple antibiotics, looking at penicillin, looking at certain cephalosporins, including cephalothin. And there's no improved outcome, actually, compared to just standard cephalosporin prophylaxis. So prophylaxis with a single dose of ampicillin or first-generation cephalosporin should be performed. The only exception to this is that there's new data from this year that says from patient that is experiencing labor, an additional dose of azithromycin, 500 milligrams, should be added on. What about timing of antibiotics, Nick? Like when should I be giving my patients their antibiotics? Yeah, so surprisingly enough, there's even evidence for this, grade A evidence, um, that says that 15 to 60 minutes prior to skin incision is the optimal time to dose antibiotics with an outcome of a reduced risk of postpartum endometritis. And that's from a meta-analysis, actually, of five randomized controlled trials. Um, some people have actually looked at multiple doses of antibiotics to see if that reduced the outcome. And actually, there's grade D evidence, so recommending against that practice, actually. Faye, one thing that I've always wondered about, I guess, is that I think in OB, we're really bad about thromboprophylaxis. Like, no, we don't really think about that a lot, especially with our young and healthy patients. Do you know if there's any evidence about that? Yeah, so if we're looking at all the USPSTF grades of evidence, this is considered grade 
I, which means insufficient evidence one way or the other. Really, thromboprophylaxis, we could be doing mechanical prophylaxis with SEDs, or we could be doing chemical prophylaxis with like heparin or Lovenox or what have you. And really, there's no randomized controlled trial looking at compression stockings compared to heparin and Lovenox. And also, even the studies looking at heparin and Lovenox themselves to see if there was improved outcomes and fewer DVTs were not really power to do that. Hey, one thing that we've kind of come back to in our hospital has been the presence of a vaginal prep before a C-section too. Is there evidence behind that? Because it takes up so much time. Yeah. So there's actually level B evidence, which is pretty good evidence um, for vaginal preparation. So in a trial of more than 300 women, there were fewer cases of post-cesarean endometritis in women who received a vaginal providone iodine scrub. However, there was not a decrease in postoperative fever or wound infection. And finally, there was a Cochrane review that showed significantly decreased incidence of post-cesarean endometritis. So we should be doing that vaginal prep. All right, so we've done the vaginal prep. That next step that our nurses always do is they put in a catheter. Mm -hmm. Should we be doing that? Yeah, so this one actually surprised me kind of. So no, there's a very low incidence of bladder injury or ureteral injury in the literature. So Trials that have been done looking at this as a primary outcome are probably underpowered. That said, randomized trials have shown decreased incidence of UTI in uncatheterized patients at a clip of 0.5% in uncatheterized patients versus almost 6% in catheterized patients, and no difference in post-op urinary retention. Interesting. So that's like, again, a practice that I'm honestly surprised a lot by. There's another trial as well that looked at immediate versus 24-hour after-surgery removal of the urinary catheter with no significant difference in post-op urinary retention and a lower incidence of positive urine cultures at 72 hours in the immediate removal group. That said, these trials are kind of small, and so the overall grade of evidence here is level C um, to consider not placing or the early removal of an indwelling bladder catheter. Faye, another thing that's kind of you see come and go periodically depending on who you work with is using supplemental oxygen to prevent supposedly cesarean delivery morbidity from infection. What do you think about that? So this is level D evidence. Don't give people oxygen. And two randomized controlled trials looked at this. So they gave patients either two liters or 10 liters during and for two hours after cesarean delivery. And this showed no reduction in morbidity from infection among the groups. Okay, so... We have prepped our patient, we've draped them, we gave them their antibiotic, they may or may not have a catheter in place that we're going to consider taking out immediately afterwards. We're about to start our actual C-section. And you're going to cut the skin. Where do I cut the skin? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different types of incisions. And I don't think even, you know, as a med student, I really kind of understood and even probably as an intern in a second year, like you always go through and it's called a fan and steel, right? But yeah. There's actually a lot of different ways to, to get in. So we'll post a little table on our website kind of showing the differences, but things that you can think about other than a fan of steel would be a Joel Cohen incision, which is a straight transverse incision. Um, there's a mizgov Ladakh incision, which hey, I'm going to have to get you to explain that truthfully. And then there's also a modified mizgov Ladakh incision. So have an idea how to explain that to our listeners? These are all the different methods of doing a C-section. So we're not just talking about skin incision anymore. So if we talked about our traditional fan and steel method, we're going to be doing a fan and steel incision, which is traditionally two centimeters above the 
pubic bone. Your sub-Q layer is going to be sharply dissected. The fascial opening is going to be sharp. Peritoneal opening is going to be sharp. Uterine incision is going to be initially sharp and then with a blunt entry. And then manually removing that placenta and then closing the uterus in a single layer that is interrupted. And closing your peritoneum, closing your fascia in interrupted sutures, and then closing your skin. The Jolcone method is a little bit different where your skin incision is that Jolcone, which is a little bit higher, straight transverse incision. Um, but you actually blunt dissect your entire way down until your peritoneum and then you sharply incise the uterus and then bluntly enter the uterus. And then finally, there's the Miskov Ladakh, which is very similar to the Joe Cohen method, except you do a manual placental removal instead of a spontaneous placental removal. And then the modified Miskov Ladakh is again similar, except you use a fan and steel skin incision instead of a Joel Cohen incision. With all of these methods, looking at randomized control trials, has there been any method that has been shown to be better than another one, Nick? So yeah, I mean. It makes sense that sort of these blunt techniques where you're really just kind of moving through might be a little bit faster and you know, a good idea might be to look at cost outcomes with those and somebody did look at that. There have been randomized control trials comparing again this mozgov ladek technique which is mostly blunt and doing a running layer on the uterus versus the traditional fan and steel technique and the mozgov ladek I think unsurprisingly showed improved operating time and also a possible cost reduction. Randomized trials looking at the Joel Cohen incision in particular showed improved short-term outcomes such as less blood loss, less fever, lower duration of post-operative pain, but really unknown neonatal outcomes. So in the end, this kind of comes out at a sort of indeterminate but level C evidence in favor of those blunt techniques. Faye, something I think that's old school or a couple things that I think are old school are kind of like this very particular dissection in two particular places. There's dissecting the fascia off the rectus muscle in sort of that sharp fashion. And then there's also the development of a bladder flap. We have like good evidence about these things. Yeah. So we've got through the skin. We finally get down to the fascia. And as you know, when we're trying to get the fascia away and trying to see our field and where we're going, we sometimes dissect the rectus muscles off the fascia. And this is level I evidence, just meaning that there's insufficient information as to whether or not this is helpful. In terms of making a bladder flap, you know, some people may have different opinions about this. You don't make one for a primary C-section, but you make one for a repeat C-section. And actually, um, studies looking at this where they actually did not do a bladder flap at primary or repeat C-sections showed that there was shortened incision to delivery time and there was no increase in intraoperative or postoperative complications. So actually, level D evidence, don't make a bladder flap. Wow. Nick, we've got down to the uterus. We didn't make our bladder flap. I made my incision on the uterus and then I've poked in. I'm in. How am I supposed to expand my incision? Do I yeah. use a knife? Do I use my hands? So yeah, once upon a time, people would have said like you make the incision with a knife and then you take out the bandage scissors and you go to either side and you extend your incision in that controlled fashion. But nowadays, people are mostly in favor of blunt expansion. And some people will tell you to pull side to side or in a transverse fashion with blunt extension. And other people will tell you to pull up and down or cephalocaudad with an extension of the uterine incision. There's actually a randomized trial looking at how you do that stretch. Um, in over 800 women that underwent either blunt transverse or blunt cephalocaudad expansion, those who had a transverse expansion were more likely to have an unintended extension 
and an EBL of greater than 1500 cc's. So, I mean, I guess that makes sense in the end if you're pulling out towards those uterines that you might end up with an yeah. extension you don't like. So in the end, the recommendation is to pull up and down, do the cephalocaudat extension. Got it. Speaking of hemorrhage, I guess, Faye, what do we do to prevent hemorrhage? Yeah, so there's a, a lot of medications that we give to prevent hemorrhage, and we have a whole episode about this. But looking at what we can give at the time of the C-section. So one is looking at oxytocin infusion. And this was a little bit difficult to figure out in terms of which institutions give how much. But looking at a study where oxytocin infusion was given either 10 to 40 international units in one liter over four to eight hours, it is actually very effective in uterine acne prevention. So this is level B evidence. We should be giving Pitocin. And then Nick, I know this may be a little bit of a sore spot for you, but there was evidence that showed that giving mesoprostol was not superior to oxytocin in uterine acne prevention with increased side effects such as fever and things like that, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. However, mesoprostol and oxytocin together led to reduced need for other uterotonics. However, the paper did say that this was level D evidence. Don't use mesoprostol by itself for uterine acne. And that's the keyword by itself. That's where I have my hang up with Dr. Rouse if you've listened to that episode. So if you haven't, take a listen to it. But <laughs> anyways, Faye, there's also a newfangled drug, this tranexamic acid. I'm going to let you talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So TXA, if you remember from our postpartum hemorrhage episode, is an excellent drug to use in the setting of postpartum hemorrhage that's ongoing. So rather than preventing postpartum hemorrhage, you should use tranexamic acid if you've experienced a blood loss greater than a liter and you need more uterotonics. So you've gone through your pit and you chose methogen or you chose meso or whatever it is that you like next and you're still continuing to bleed or have acne, you should consider TXA really to reduce risk of hysterectomy and uh, mortality. There is a trial that's ongoing through the MFMU right now looking at using tranexamic acid as a preventive agent during cesarean section, but that trial is ongoing, so more to come. Faye, do you exteriorize the uterus when you get ready to close? I do, um, just because I feel like I can see better, but really the evidence is level C. So basically you can do it if it makes you happy, but really it's you can go either way. What about closing the uterine incision? So I know a lot of people at our institution will do double layer closure. So they'll do the single running locked, and then they'll do a second where they imbricate. What does the evidence say? Yeah, so... Again, this I feel like is a constant like back and forth between obstetricians, but there has been a randomized trial, a pretty sizable trial actually, over 3,000 participants looking at single layer versus double layer closure. Um, and the primary outcomes that they looked at were morbidity from infection, surgery duration, need for blood transfusion, and need for hospital readmission. There was no difference in any of those primary outcomes looking at a single versus a double layer. It's controversial looking at single versus double layer and risk regarding uterine rupture. And there's also some data that's out now looking at like scar thickness based on ultrasound and single versus double layer closure. But whether that translates to any sort of clinical outcome in the future remains to be seen. So this is also a level C kind of evidence. Basically, do what makes you happy. All right, so we're done with the uterus. The baby's out. Uterus is closed. We put the uterus back into the abdomen, if you're me, because I like to take it out. Now we get back to the peritoneum. Do you close the peritoneum? Uh, I don't, but admittedly, there are some people that do, and they may have a point. There have been studies that show an increased risk of intra-abdominal adhesions in patients who did not have a peritoneal closure. But then in another study, there wasn't any change in the risk. 
So there are some advantages to closing it, but there are also advantages to not closing it. There have been studies to demonstrate less post-operative fever in those who have no closure of the peritoneum. Certainly there's less operating time, and there's a tie-in to reduced hospital stay. In the end, though, kind of these are all soft markers, and we're once again at level C evidence. Faye, what about needle type? Because I guess we started closing things up, but kind of picking our suture. No, I don't know if people out there are really picky about their type of needles, but I know it was a big revolution in our hospital when we switched from sharp needles to blunt needles. Is there any reason that we did that? Yeah. Um, and this is actually a very, I, I feel like, you know, there were randomized controlled trials looking at these needles, but it really is kind of a, a common sense thing. Like, do you want to get poked with a really sharp needle? Yeah, not particularly. <laughs> right. And, and so the randomized controlled trials have shown that people actually get poked less if you use the blunt needles. So level A evidence, use blunt needles. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> what about um, sub-Q closures, Faye? Now that we're kind of back up and we're almost out of dodge, you know, I haven't seen this in a while, but I do remember being a med student and some people talking about leaving a drain um, versus closing the sub-Q tissue. What do you, what do you know about recommendations? So there is level A evidence that you should close the subcutaneous tissue if there's greater than two centimeters of tissue. And that protects against things like fluid collection, seromas, things like that. However, subcutaneous strains have not really been shown to help, and this is level D evidence, so don't leave one in. Okay, Nick, so we're finally almost done with our C-section. We're down to the skin. Are you a staples or sutra kind of guy? I guess it depends on... What time of day it is and who my scrub tech is, really. If it's three in the morning and they're coming at me with the stapler, I guess I'm closing with staples. But if they got the 4 out, then I'm, a, I'm usually a suture kind of guy, I guess. Okay, but what does the evidence have to say about this? Interestingly enough, there's copious evidence about staples versus stitches. Staples have been associated with up to twofold higher risk of wound infection or separation when compared with subcuticular suture closure. However, a recent Cochrane review of eight trials showed that wound complications and cosmetic outcomes were the same in both. So at this point, conflicting data. Um, so in the end, a C-grade recommendation. Do what makes you happy, though I will say that I think patients are happier with the suture closure. That someone's not coming at them at 5.30 in the morning trying to remove their staples on post-op day three. Exactly. All right, Nick. So we've gone through our entire C-section. Let's go ahead and kind of sum up things um, in terms of let's go with preoperative preparation, intraoperative technique. We'll kind of divide up these two. Perfect. So pre-op preparation, we'll start there. Again, prophylactic antibiotics 15 to 60 minutes before skin incision. Should use cephalosporin. And then for a patient in labor, um, add azithromycin. There's no evidence to suggest that multiple doses of antibiotics make a difference. Thromboprophylaxis has no sufficient evidence one way or the other. Great resident research project if you're looking at it. Vaginal preparation with povidine iodine prior to incision um, demonstrates less post-cesarean endometritis, but no difference between post-op fevers or wound infections. And then finally, probably the surprising one out of this group was indwelling bladder catheter. There's reduced risk of UTI in uncatheterized patients. There's very little evidence to suggest any change in bladder or ureteral injury with uncatheterized patients. But in the end, level C, consider not placing or using an early removal of the bladder catheter. In terms of intraoperative technique, we talked about 
the traditional fan and steel method versus Joel Cohen versus the Mizgov Ladakh versus the modified Mizgov Ladakh. And really randomized controlled trials showing showed that using the Mizgov Ladakh method or looking at Joel Cohen methods have shown improved operating times and possible cost reduction. And especially the Joel Cohen method have shown improved short-term outcomes, meaning things like less post-operative fever and blood loss and duration of pain um, as compared to the traditional fan and steel incision, though level C evidence um, overall because there's unknown neonatal outcomes. In terms of other things, bladder flaps, actually level D evidence, don't make a bladder flap. You should be expanding your uterine incision bluntly, cephalad, caudad, and you should be using oxytocin and not mesoprostol by itself. However, if you already have a postpartum hemorrhage, you should use TXA. Uterine exteriorization and closure of the uterine incision with either single versus double layer is kind of up to you, level C evidence. And same thing with peritoneal closure. You should be using blunt needles the entire time. You should close the subcutaneous tissue if there is more than two centimeters of tissue there. And finally, staples or stitches, take your pick. Once again, I'm Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. Catch us online on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or on Patreon where you can get some cool swag or a shout-out on the show, patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. If you have a suggestion for our show or found a mistake in one of our previous podcasts, give us an email over at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>